This program is released under a Creative Commons license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. This is Christ the Center, episode 36. Today we speak with Scott Oliphant about the fourth edition of Cornelius Van Til's important work, The Defense of the Faith. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and today I'm joined by Jim Cassidy and Jeff Waddington, who are both at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. James Dalzell, who is a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And also our special guest today is Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's also the author of Reasons for Faith, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, as well as editing uh, a new book, well, not a new book, a new edition of The Defense of the Faith by Cornelius Van Til. Justified in Christ, an excellent book, and also Reason and Revelation, which he co-edited with Lane Tipton, and also contributor to the Theological Guide to Calvin's Institute, which we have been speaking about recently. Good morning, guys. It's a pleasure to have you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Camden. Well, we're really interested today because we're talking about Dr. Cornelius Van Til and his great tome, The Defense of the Faith, which has been re-edited, along with uh, uh, Systematic Theology and Christian Apologetics in this PNR series, and uh, we'll talk about that soon, but we first want to mention any new publications or conferences, anything that would be of interest to our listeners. Is there anything new out there? Well, there's uh, to get us kicked off here, There's uh, Eric Brisley has produced a guide to the writings of Herman Bovink, but it's not out yet, sometime uh, later this month. Uh, he's the same gentleman who did a guide to the writings of Van Til, which I think the bookstore still sells. If it's anything like his guide to Van Til, uh, it'll be very thorough. Yes, very. The uh, Well, of course, there's that uh, book, Reforming and Conforming, that's coming out at the end of the month, assuming uh, that Crossway sticks to its uh, timeline. That might be out by the time this airs, but uh, keep your Indeed. eyes open for that. Yeah. Right. Jeff, to get royalties for your chapter in that book? <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, we'll keep that off the air. <laughs> Gets a gold star. <laughs> there you go. Whoa. Uh, there's a really interesting book due out in uh, this month. I keep forgetting we're in September already. Uh, Christ and Caesar, uh, the Gospel in the Roman Empire and the Writings of Paul and Luke by Seyun Kim who is, uh, you may be familiar with the fact that he is a critic of the new perspective on Paul. At Ful- is he still uh, at Fuller Seminary? Is that right? I believe so. I believe that's correct. Okay. Uh, he's, he's published at least, uh, what, two or two other books? Uh, the Origin of Paul's Gospel, uh, which is a purposeful uh, echo of uh, the, the writing, the, the book by uh, Machen, The Origin of Paul's Religion. There we go. And, and then he did a, a book on the new perspective, uh, critiquing it at some length, and this book uh, looks like you know I don't ha- it's not available yet, but it looks like it's going after perhaps going after N.T. Wright's uh, ideas about uh, Christ as Lord. Uh, anyway, so it uh, looks like it'll be an interesting title. Good. And then, Maybe a footnote to that is also Francis Watson's new book, of which. 
the I think the subtitle is be, Beyond New Perspectives on Paul or something like this, which will be an he's an interesting critic of the new perspective yes. from the British side because there used to be one. Right. Right. If I remember correctly, he used to hold to that view. Uh, let's see. We booked, oh, The Advent of Evangelicalism, which is a book that's already been uh, published over in the UK under a slightly different title, which escapes me right now. But it's dealing with the historic the thesis of David Bebbington, who's a well-known evangelical church historian. Is this the one edited by Michael Haken? Yes, it is. Yeah, that, that does look like a very interesting volume because it actually uh, includes a response from David Bebbington to about 19 different uh, yes. approaches and criticisms of his work. It's, a, it's a, like a 450-page volume, so it's fairly substantial size-wise. And then there is, uh, let's see, uh, let's see, uh, "Suffering in the Goodness of God" by Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson. They've they've uh, uh, teamed up before, I think, to deal with the. Uh, they edited a book on uh, inclusivism. Uh, now they're dealing with the suffering in the goodness of God, which looks interesting. Uh, all sorts of uh, good books that are slated to come out. Uh, we've already mentioned, I think, The Whole Council of God by Richard Gamble. That's due yeah. in uh, November, the first volume of of three that are slated uh, to come out. Uh, we, uh, that, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to add, um, while I'm thinking of it, because you had mentioned uh, Boving previously, uh, there's also uh, this huge, it seems to be a huge international conference on Herman Bovink over at Calvin College and Seminary yeah, at correct. the end of this month. Oh, really? Yeah, co-sponsored yeah, by the Free University and Princeton Seminary. Yeah, September 18th to the 20th. Yeah. That looks like that's going to be uh, interesting. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, speaking of Bovink, there's also a new collection of uh, about a 220-page book on the doctrine of salvation. Uh, I think it's going to be more accessible to lay readers coming out from Bovink, uh, particularly maybe highlighting the difference of his view on salvation from some of uh, the presumptive regeneration found in Abraham Kuyper. Uh, that's coming out from Reformation Heritage. Right. Uh, or maybe it's grace. out already. Saved by Grace, okay. Yeah, right. that's the title. Uh, maybe uh, we should also bring up, if it's not too presumptuous, to give an early uh, uh, alert that there could be, should be, a <laughs> an apologetics reader, uh, at least the first volume, uh, coming sometime in the months ahead uh, from Dr. Oliphant and Dr. Edgar at Westminster. Maybe Jeff or Dr. Oliphant could comment on that. I'll let the good doctor comment on that. <laughs> Why do you call me good? <laughs> oh, okay. That's the doctor then. Yeah, um, it's, it's uh, volume one up to the Reformation. Uh, we hope to have it uh, submitted by the end of this month with Jeff's uh, help, and then we'll uh, begin Volume 2. So I, I would guess actual publication would be probably a year from now for the first volume. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a phenomenal uh, primary text with uh, helpful introductions. If you like uh, what's being done with Van Til uh, in the volume, for instance, we'll be discussing this morning, uh, you will, I think, very much appreciate uh, the anthology wonderful material. Hmm. About how many pages do you anticipate the volume to be? 
Um, right, right now they're guessing uh, five hundred fifty or so. Oh, okay, wow. per, per volume, per volume, per volume. Yeah, right. Is that Crossway? Uh huh. And they're they're posting it in hardback, so it'll be a nice, uh, hopefully, nice. a nice oh. reference tool. Good. Right. Yeah. Nice. This sounds like something very valuable for comprehensive exams. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And other things. Just make sure you know everything for comprehensive. Experience. Yeah, that's the that's that's, right. a, that's the key. Is there any new readings? Are there any new readings? Should I say in apologetics or systematics that you've been reading, Doctor Oliphant? Anything you'd like to mention? Um, no, I've been uh, working through some of the things you've uh, some of the things you've mentioned here mm-hmm. um, a little bit just to see see what's out there. I'm 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 happy overall with the uh, renewed interest in Bobby. Nice to have him in English. I think that's going to help things uh, along the way significantly. Now, are there any other seminaries that have adopted those volumes in their systematics departments as standard texts other than Westminster? Boy, I, I, have no, I have no idea on that. Yeah, okay. Well, I think uh, some seminaries are still using Turretin as we are, but um, Bovink is still uh, a, a welcome companion to that in the English. Um well, even for many people, ten years ago, you didn't even have uh, Turretin yeah. into the curriculum right. yet. That's so, right. well, you guys need to learn Dutch and Latin. What's your problem? Yeah, will you teach us, Jeff? <laughs> 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 yeah, for a fee, for a fee. There you go. Make it small. Make it small. Oh, okay. Make it small. <laughs> well, today we wanted to speak about, of course, the defense of the faith, the fourth edition uh, by Cornelius Van Til and edited by uh, Doctor Oliphant. Uh, with helpful um, annotations, and uh, there's a, this this isn't a joke when you say that he's edited it. This this isn't just something that you tack onto the cover, along with your name. There's been significant a significant amount of work in this volume, and we are uh, really appreciative of that, Doctor Oliphant. This is significantly larger um, than the last volume we had, I believe, which was published in the 70s from PNR. What is different about this, and why did you feel it important to restore it? Uh, restore those portions back to the book. Um, yeah, well, I think that the, the primary difference is uh, what you have in the first edition in 1955 is Van Til's interaction with um, primarily uh, some of the Dutch folk uh, who were coming after him in terms of his apologetic method. And uh, as I say in the beginning of the book, um, some of this is, is uh, a bit speculative, although I think the pieces uh, fit together. I think he wrote Defense of the Faith primarily as a response uh, to them, and then uh, he knew that he needed to set his position out, uh, as he hoped, uh, a bit more clearly than what he had done uh, previously. Um, if you've read uh, Meenther's biography, you know that Van Til would get um, frustrated with his own lack of clarity and there are a lot of things going on there in terms of his own uh, style of thinking and writing. And um, I think what he wanted to do here, having read the Calvin Forum attacks, is he wanted to try to set things out as systematically and as clearly as he could. And I think um, there, there was some, I think there's some, uh, certainly some uh, rationale for excluding that material later on in uh, subsequent editions of Defense of the Faith, but um, when I was talking with PNR about this, I told them I didn't want to do it unless the whole thing were included, because I think we're at a point um, where uh, the context of what Van Til is up to is all important, number one, and number two, I think you miss 
the emphasis in the initial volume on common grace that was uh, a significant part of the background of of this uh, this initial volume in 1955. So I, I thought those things it was necessary to include those things now, given where we are uh, in our discussions. And um, I, I think it shows I think it shows better what Van Til was up against and um, what he was trying to clarify as he wrote this volume. So to me, it uh, it's uh, I, I was thrilled that they were. Uh, not only willing to do that, but excited about going back to the first edition. And I think, in 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 terms of the whole of Van Til's thinking, it's it's the best one volume you can get. Not not because of what I've written, but because of what he says there from beginning to end, including the uh, interaction with his critics. Hmm. Doctor Oliphant, would you be able to set um, for listeners who may not be familiar, what are what are the issues going on? Um, that precipitated his response. In other words, it's over the the common grace controversy. Would you be able to just briefly distill for us what are the theological issues involved in that controversy? Yeah, well, as you probably know, there was significant discussion about this in the Dutch community, uh, so much so that uh, that many split off and began their own uh, denomination, which would... Um, uh, exist in order to deny the notion of common grace, but the, the uh, Christian Reformed Church set out some basic tenets, which are included in this Defense of the Faith volume now, uh, basic tenets of common grace uh, initially, and Van Til um, agreed with those on the whole. He has some disagreements with Kuyper, um, but the reality of uh, the situation is that many were reading uh, Van Til as being uh, way too extreme with respect to his views, uh, particularly on what he calls the uh, absolute ethical antithesis, where he uh, sets out to, uh, to correct and I think uh, rightly uh, clarify uh, some things that Kuiper had laid out. And uh, because Van took the antithesis, uh, it's interesting, some of his critics read him as... Um, as having no understanding of common grace, or at least no application of common grace in his own his own position, and that's why I thought it was important <clears throat> that in this volume, the material that he lays out on common grace be be included uh, in the context of those debates that were going on uh, in the Calvin Forum. So I think what you have in in um, in Van Til, and I think it, you again. Uh, we can talk about this in a minute, but you have this because you have it in Reformed theology. What you have is the antithesis being fundamental. That is, it's covenantally qualified. Everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. There's no other in to be. Hmm. And given hmm. that antithesis, then um, what is going on in the world has to do with uh, God's own activity and the restraint of sin so that people are not as bad even as they would want to be because of God's restraint. And in the midst of that uh, restraint, then this is what uh, Van Til calls the um, the playground of differentiation. Um, again, probably not the clearest phrase, but what he's trying to say is what you have in the world is the working out of God's plan, uh, drawing those who are elect and in Adam, drawing them to Christ, and further differentiating uh, covenantally between uh, the antithetical uh, scenario in which people are either one or the other. So um, I, I think it's I think it's absolutely crucial to get both of those things within the purview because if it's if you think uh, for example that common grace is uh, simply a kind of 
modifying of total depravity, you've got it wrong. It's mm. not that. Mm. Uh, or if you think that the antithesis is metaphysical in terms of its absoluteness, which is the way uh, sometimes Van Til is read, then, then you get that wrong as well. And that latter point, the metaphysical kind of antithesis, is the way Van Til was being read by many of his critics in the Calvin form. So that needed to be, uh, that needed to be set out uh, fairly clearly in terms of his interaction. He does that as he interacts with um, Orlebeck and um, the De Boers and, and uh, some others in the Calvin form. When you when you speak of metaphysical antithesis, uh, is there just for some of our listeners? Is there another way that you could explain that? What is the what is the confusion when Van Til is read that way? Yeah, I think the confusion is is pointed out really fairly clearly in the discussion that Warfield had with regard to Kuiper. Uh, Warfield uh, initially read Kuiper as uh, as promoting what Warfield called an antithesis in kind. That is, that there really are, metaphysically, in terms of um, our basic essential constitution, there are two kinds of people. That's the way Warfield read, read Kuiper. And, and, and I think Kuiper has, uh, at times he does, he does speak that way, but if you look at the way Kuiper illustrates his notion of the antithesis with, a, with fruit trees, one that has a graft and the other is not grafted, you, you don't get that. Um, you don't get that in his in his illustrations. It's clear that he's talking about something else. But right. Van Til came along, and rather than talking about um, uh, difference in kind, in that kind of way, Van Til modified that by talking about an absolute ethical antithesis, mm. which I've I've sort of uh, reconstituted an absolute covenantal antithesis because that's what Van Til meant when he said ethical. The problem is ethics has gotten so blurred and vague and um, has connotations of Richelianism and all those sorts of things. So it's, I think it's best not to use that word. But that's, that's all Van Til was saying. We've got a covenantal antithesis in which there's a unifying element, all of us made in the image of God, but then mm-hmm. with respect to our relationship to God, we're either in Adam or in Christ, and that's covenantally qualified, covenantally defined. So um, Warfield was right, I think, to read Kuiper as a bit extreme, and Van Til comes along and corrects that. But even though extreme, Kuiper did not think specifically about a metaphysical antithesis. I think he just wasn't as clear as he could have been in his discussion of the antithesis. And then, in some in some cases, in my view, I think Van Til was right. Kuiper just got it wrong. To stress a metaphysical antithesis for Van Til would would lose uh, what the point of contact. Yeah, if if there are two kinds of people literally in the world, and you have some that are made in the image of God and some that are not, or uh, some that are made one particular way and some not. In other words, it, it has to do with who we are essentially. That's that's what we're talking about in terms of metaphysics. And uh, we are essentially image of God. We'll always be that in heaven or hell. And then mm. uh, given that uh, context, we are either in Adam or in Christ covenantally. And um, if you don't have that lined out fairly clearly, then you can go wrong in the antithesis on either side. So what does that do? What does what does establishing that metaphysical uh, sameness do uh, for the advance of the gospel or, or knowledge or the faith that Van Til wants to defend? I mean, he wants to engage unbelievers. Why does that metaphysical sameness hold out the hope of actually being able to meaningfully engage unbelievers? Well, I think um, partly because, and I. I uh I want to say uh, partly, maybe, maybe uh, in in the first place, because that being made in the image of God means 
as uh, Paul fleshes out in Romans 1, means that all of God's human creatures know him uh, mm. by virtue of God revealing himself to them. That is, the image of God as Paul uh, fleshes out what that means in Romans 1, and that's very much the context, uh, one eighteen to uh, to 22 particularly, and then he talks later, uh, or talks after that about the common grace of God. But initially he has in mind uh, the knowledge of God that all of God's human creatures have. That knowledge of God is not erased by virtue of the fall. It is rather uh, suppressed in unrighteousness. And even if suppressed, which it is, it's still there. That is, it's the suppression of the truth that renders uh, all of God's human creatures inexcusable before him. So because everyone knows God, you never come into a situation in a discussion of the gospel in which the person to whom you speak has no idea who this God is. Now, there's, there's a facade factor that you always have to, um, have to uh, include in your discussion. That is, people aren't going to acknowledge that they know God. And I don't think apologetically you're, you're meant to go up to people and say, hey, you know God and you won't acknowledge it. That's not the approach. But given what Paul says, we know that going into a discussion so that the gospel, when it's communicated, resonates with people because they do know God and the Spirit of God sovereignly makes his point by virtue of that gospel to someone who is covenantally in a relationship to God. It may be a relationship of rebellion, but it's still a relationship. Sure. So that that, that gospel never goes into a vacuous context or a neutral context or a context of agnosticism, but it goes into a context of the knowledge of God suppressed. And it's that point of contact that Van Til emphasizes, and I think uh, rightly says that is our basic um, uh, point of contact, the Anknutfungspunkt, as he put it, the point of contact uh, for uh, communication of a defense of Christianity and of the, of the good news of the gospel uh, to people, because God's already been there and he's made himself known. He continues to do that, not only in this life, but in the life to come, whether in heaven or in hell. Now, you'd mentioned Warfield and Kuiper, and uh, in the introduction to the defense of the faith, Van Til consciously acknowledges, he, he writes that he's borrowing or taking their insights and, so to speak, bridging the gap between them in some ways. Has, um, has modern Warfield scholarship uh, or even Kuiperian scholarship changed our view of Van Tilian apologetics over time? Uh, have there been any recent developments that have altered what we see Van Til doing with those two men? Um, well, I've, um, I've been impressed with a good bit of uh, Paul Helseth's uh, work on uh, Warfield and Machen and the way he's trying to get at um, what the idea of right reason might be in the context of the 19th century uh, particularly. And I think there are uh, places uh, in Van Til where he... Um, sometimes overestimates uh, what Warfield and uh, maybe to some extent, I think a lesser extent, Kuiper, but uh, certainly what Warfield's doing, I think he overestimates uh, some of Warfield's um, trajectories, if I can use that word, but where Warfield might wind up given what he said. Um, having said that, I think Van Til was uh, on the money not only in his critique of Warfield, but I think Kuyper and Bavink as well. And as you know, he appreciated all three of those men much more than he critiqued them. These were not 
enemies. These were giants that he learned from. But even in the midst of that, I think his his critiques were uh, on the mark in the sense that uh, Warfield was uh, perhaps, at least in my view, I think in Van Til's view, a bit too taken with a kind of realistic epistemology. Mm. And, and, and given that, then a supposition of a kind of neutrality that I think might uh, hurt uh, your methodology if you're wanting to be biblical in the way you approach things. Now again, I don't think that was uh, I don't think that was by any stretch a predominance in Warfield. I don't think you can make that case at all. So I think what Van Til's pointing out is a glitch here and there that needed that needed to be shored up. I think you see it. I think it's even worse uh, in Kuiper, and I think there are segments, uh, again, small segments, but significant segments in Bobbing uh, that need to be shored up, uh, and that Van Til was rightly shoring up. Uh, in order to uh, promote what he saw, and I think what he rightly saw, the reform methodology in apologetics. Yeah. No. So, uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say, in terms of Warfield studies, I think Helseth is basically right. I think he can show that every time a person says reason, they don't mean neutral reason. That's, that's true mm-hmm. enough. And I think Van Til may have been a little bit too um, skittish about, about that word and the way in which it was used. But having said that, there are things in Warfield, there's no question you can see him, um, where he is uh, promoting a kind of methodology that's not going to be fundamentally useful because not fundamentally biblical. Now, again, that's a glitch. That's not all of Warfield. Um, I, you know, I want people to hear that Warfield is worth the reading and the study and, sure. and everything that he wrote. But still, I think there are, there are little areas there that need to be shored up. Now, when you mentioned glitch, you're meaning an inconsistency with the confessional reformed yeah, doctrine, exactly. and, and that's yeah. And I thought that was very interesting. Even Van Til is very, very he he's very clear when he writes it. He really didn't think he was doing anything original. He was just, and if you were to claim that his apologetic were original, uh, it seems as he would say, well, it's just original in that I'm applying traditional confessional reformed doctrine to apologetics. That he's not yeah, trying see, to come up with anything brand new. Yeah, and see, I think that I think that's just a monumentally crucial point, and it's it's been driven home uh, uh, more and more, uh, at least in my view, as uh, Richard Muller has come out with his uh, massive works on uh, Protestant scholastics. Uh, it just it just strikes me every time I read something uh, with regard to the Protestant scholastics that, by and large, what they're doing and what they're saying is what Van Til was doing and saying. So, in in my um, and, not, and it'll be obvious here that I'm no historian, but at least in my Reformed historiography, what I see is consistency, by and large, in the 17th century, a kind of blip uh, in at, at Princeton that um, again is is not uh, is not uh, predominant, but is certainly there. And then I see Van Til picking up. Uh, more of what was going on in the Protestant scholastics and and simply applying uh, Reformed theology to his apologetic methodology. Now, I think the reason for that, uh, Van Til himself would admit he's not um, he's not a historian, a church historian, but see, because he was so influenced by Bovink, and, and now that we have Bovink's fault, well, you can see this in the Dutch as well if you look at the footnotes, but you see Bovink's dependence on the 17th century and so much of what he says. And so Van Til just sort of imbibed that by way of bobbing and uh, began to articulate uh, his views early on. And um, I think it's because he had that influence that he was able to apply 
Reformed theology more consistently to apologetic methodology. But Van Til never saw himself as a real innovator. He just uh, he gained an insight and then wrote about it. And I think that's what uh, the best of Reformed theology does. Do you think he did that or didn't write as much on the Trinity because he thought the same thing? Um, because he thought what? Because he, because he thought he was just following in the footsteps of, of the men before him, that his Trinitarian theology wasn't very original? Oh, I'm sure of it. Yeah, I, I don't think he, um, I mean, I, I, at least, um, and, and granted, I, I didn't know him until later on in his life, but there's no question in his own mind he didn't think he was doing anything original there, nor would he have wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a good bit made about one person, three person, and, you know, we could spend a few hours on that. But um, I think a couple of things have to be said about that. Number one, in the context of what Van Til is saying, he's absolutely right. And number two, what he's not doing is setting out for us a new Trinitarian dictum that the church now is, is meant to be pronouncing, one person, three person. That is not what he wanted to do. He understood the difference uh, very well between... Um, uh, person and nature and person and being and essence and all those things. He was uh, he, he was um, schooled in those things and understood that completely. But um, there was, uh, in, in the context of some theology, there was thinking that I think probably is uh, still around today, that the oneness of God was an abstraction from which three persons then would draw certain attributes and properties. Yeah. And Van Til's point was, you can't think that way. Um, the oneness is God is the personal God. And And so there's a a legitimacy to saying that one person, three person, although in saying that, I think Van Til is very well aware of the fact that he's not using person in the historic sense of the way it's been used. And so that's going to make some, particularly church historians, kind of uncomfortable. And I think it would make Van Til uncomfortable if he thought um, that people were uh, then attributing to him Mm -hmm. a new Trinitarian dictum. That's not what he was trying to do. And the interesting thing is, I, I mean, you find you find virtually that exact same language in Herman Bavink. Exactly. And he uh, quotes well. Bavink when he uses that. He quotes him, um, as I remember, in the Dutch, in uh, Bavink's Reformed Dogmatics, uh, saying this basic same thing. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that Van Til just thought he was, uh, he was saying what Reformed theologians had always been saying. I know, and even even some of Van Til's friends, contemporary writers, I think particularly of of Bob Lethem in this connection, are are sort of embarrassed or apologetic uh, about that aspect of Van Til's thought, and they try to defend him uh, by claiming lack of clarity. Uh, but then, subsequent to the to the publishing of the Bovink volumes, we find the identical language and looking at the context, attempting to make the exact same point Van Til's making in an apologetical context. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's one of the reasons that people need not get too bothered about that statement. The point Van Til is making is the right point. Um, but having said that, what he's not doing is saying, now we all need to speak this way. This is a new formulation, and let's all you. I think that's way, way overstating. And Van Til would have been embarrassed by that kind of um, understanding of what he was about. Maybe since we're talking about theology, maybe you can make a comment upon how how theology plays into Van Til's thought, because he was, I mean, at one point he was offered a position at Calvin Seminary, I think not to teach apologetics, but to come and teach systematic theology. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And how does, how does systematic theology relate to apologetics in the thought of Van Til? Because he, he says things that, that he presumes uh, the reform system of doctrine. He doesn't begin with, with theism. He doesn't begin with a few basic things and then work his way up to doctrine. Rather, he, he starts from 
the corpus of reform doctrine that's handed down to him and then heads into apologetics. Why is, why is that significant and in some ways unique to Van Til? Yeah, well, I think that is the uh, I think that is the most significant point in Van Til that hasn't been adequately uh, stressed uh, until uh, lately, and it's the point that drew me to Van Til uh, thirty plus years ago. Um, that what he's what he's uh, attempting to do is simply uh, take the the basic principle of revelation being foundational to everything that we believe and everything that we understand. Take that basic principle and um, apply it to apologetic methodology. Now, that requires that you have a theology that's applicable with regard to apologetics. Contrast that now with um, a a Thomistic methodology, that is a methodology that some people following uh, Thomas would want to apply. And what Thomas says very clearly is that there are some things about God that can be known uh, by reason alone, uh, and he says, quote, unquote, such are that God is one and that he exists. And then there are other things that can be known by revelation. Now, see, what you're doing at that point is, uh, even if subtly, and there, there, I know, I understand there are Thomas out there who want to defend Thomas uh, in, a, in a bit of a different way, but I don't think it'll wash. What you have there is a kind of methodology where um, the natural is uh, the foundation for the supernatural. And uh, what what the reform did, I think, rightly here is uh, began to to uh, emphasize again um, that uh, that the supernatural provides the foundation. That is, if we think of the supernatural as God condescending to reveal Himself in history, mm-hmm. in all of its various forms, and now what we have in in the completed canon of Scripture, God revealing Himself foundationally, that then uh, provides for us a place on which to stand to do everything, and including apologetics, so that we don't. Mm-hmm rely on, uh, as Thomas did, the demonstration of the philosopher, capital P, who is is Aristotle, but we rely rather on what Scripture says first of all and move from there uh, to our discussion. So all you have in in Van Til, if I I can put it simply, but but I think uh, nevertheless uh, true, truly, is that you've got an application of Reformed theology to apologetics. And that's why I say in in class, and I would challenge anybody to, uh, to refute this, uh, including our friends out there who uh, claim to be Reformed but are not uh, following Van Til in their apologetic methodology. If you are Reformed in your theology, you must necessarily be Van Tilian in your apologetic. If you're not, there are significant inconsistencies on one side or the other. And um, I, I can't see any other way around that. Um, so our, our friend uh, R.C. Sproul, who's, I think, the, the best communicator of Reformed theology in our time, um, he's got a glitch. It's a significant glitch in apologetics because at that point, his Reformed theology goes out the window and uh, he becomes a Thomist. And he, you don't have that option in the Reformed context. And uh, the, the Protestant scholastics saw that. Van Til saw that. Uh, Princeton didn't see it quite as clearly. And these are generalizations. But, um, you know, I think uh, that's where uh, Reformed theology needs to be more consistently applied is in that area of apologetics. Now, uh Dr. Oliphant, one of the things, going back to the issue of the relationship of Van Til to Protestant scholasticism, uh, several years ago, Sebastian Rainman published a book called Divine Discourse on the Theological Methodology of John Owen. And I remember uh, reading a section there, uh, I, I believe of, of uh, several pages, on what is called the archetype-ectype distinction. And I remember 
thinking to myself, this is Van Til uh, and his doctrine of analogy in other language. Uh, can you comment on that, uh, Van Til, yeah. use of the archetype-ectype distinction? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's what it is, and I think when you read it in Bob Inc., um, he, he uses that, and Bob Inc. uses the language of analogy, um, and all those things you see um, from Bob Inc., because he got that from the Protestant scholastics. The, the, the basic understanding, and again, I think this is one of those places where uh, Gordon Clark should have been a bit more schooled in uh, Reformed uh, theology and not so much in philosophy. And I, I mean that. I think he should have just uh, read a bit more because there's nothing monumental here in terms of some kind of innovation. That is, that God is who he is and what he knows uh, is exhaustive. And then uh, that's archetypal knowledge, God's knowledge, ectypal, uh, everything then that God gives to his creation. Um, that is uh, from the type, ectype, uh, from God himself uh, to his uh, creatures. Now, Van Til called that um, an analogical relationship. Again, he's following uh, Bavink. I think that's, uh, that's a bad word because it messes things up with Aquinas and Butler and all these apologists who use notion of analogy. Um, I think it's uh, rather iconic uh, theology. It's, it's theology according to the image, that is, uh, something that images what is uh, itself the true thing, the archetypal knowledge of God, and is never substantively um, identified with that knowledge. An image can't be, if you think of a mirror image. It's not substantively identified, although it looks like uh, what it images. And that's why I think it's, it's best to, to, to uh, change the terminology there so it doesn't get confused with Aquinas and Butler. But the, the point is the same. Uh, analogical predication in Van Til's understanding, not Thomas's now, because Thomas did a good bit on this as well, but in, in Van Til's understanding, analogical predication just simply means we think and we act and we know as creatures. This is the case in this life. It's the case in eternity. It will always be the case. God thinks and acts and knows as God, number one, and then as God condescended, number two, in that he reveals himself to us and interacts with his creation in that way. So we have to make that distinction fundamental. This is, this is a distinction that has to be made before we talk about any kind of subject-object distinction in epistemology or anything else. It's the most basic distinction that Christians have historically understood and that I think sometimes gets clouded in the midst of uh, some of these discussions. So we could suppose that uh, maybe reading the works of Richard Muller, that the Protestant scholastics... Uh, would have been on the Van Til side of the Van Til Clark controversy. Yeah, I think there's no question on that. Or, um, or for those that for those that are, are great admirers of John Owen, uh, but but are questioning uh, Van Til, that that Owen would have been a good Van Tilian. Yeah, side, I, think so. I, I don't think there's any question about that. I, I wrote a, a paper a long time ago um, that I haven't done much with since I wrote it, but I me- I remember it struck me. I was writing uh, on Owen's view of Scripture, and um, it struck me that Owen himself is a fan of and supports and promotes circular reasoning with respect to our understanding of uh, Revelation as a basic principium. And um, he he then goes on to uh, show and argue how it is that the Romanists, the, the Papists as he calls them, they're the ones who are viciously circular. Hmm. in their trust of the Pope, but uh, Protestants are, have a, a kind of circularity that has its uh, dependence 
wholly upon God. And, you know, that's just basic Van Til theology. It just uh, it, it fits uh, completely. And there, there's no uh, no surprise there because what Van Til is doing is what Reformed theology has done uh, since the beginning. Now, who were the, the big names of the scholars that Van Til was interacting with in his 1955 edition here, The Defense of the Faith, and what were their main... What was their main critique? Uh, Jim mentioned already uh, the doctrine of common grace, but uh, is there any are there any other issues out there? Yeah, um, it, it's interesting. I would encourage people who are listening interested in this to uh, get those Calvin Forum uh, articles. Uh, you can find them in our library here at Westminster, and just about any library can get a hold of those. But um, now I remember reading these uh, a long time uh, back and uh, just being. Um, amazed at the, um, let me let me choose my word here carefully, being amazed at the, um, I guess I'll have to say the superficiality of the, of the criticisms. Um, there was, there was nobody uh, in, in, and I'm talking here about, uh, there's uh, Cliff Ortebake, um, uh, the DeBoers, um, folks like this who were associated one way or another with Calvin, uh, college and seminary, there was nobody there who was really penetrating uh, to what uh, Van Til was attempting to do, and um, there was there was a significant discussion on Van on the influence of idealism on Van Til and uh, his use of idealistic language in the way that he wrote. And um, you know, I think that's a discussion worth having. How much of uh, philosophical terminology do you, do you bring over into your uh, discussion of Defense of Christianity, but um, the, the the critiques were almost uh, saying that because he does this, because he uses this terminology, he's obviously enamored with idealism. Now, all you had to do was read his dissertation that he wrote in 1928 uh, to understand that he devastates idealism and, and lays it out um, and has, has no sympathies with it whatsoever. However, he also saw that because there uh, was in idealism a notion of an absolute, even though he critiques their notion of absolute as being uh, correlative with the relative and therefore fundamentally dependent, there was there was a notion of the absolute in idealism that Van Til could use as a point of persuasion. Now you take that language and you bring it over and you begin to talk about who the real absolute is, that is God himself as he reveals himself in Christ, and you've got yourself a nice little persuasive apologetic. Well, some of these guys just... Um, they they had no uh, they had no sympathy with uh, any of that that Van Til was trying to do to such an extent that um, their critiques are uh, in in many places uh, vicious and superficial and I think that's what uh, you know if, I've got a couple lines in the introduction uh, Van Til's comments on what's happening during that time uh, during the time of this criticism and he was uh, you know he was very upset by it it, it uh, there's no question he was hurt by the criticisms that came. And I think part of that, you know, Van Til was able to take shots. That wasn't the problem. But I think part of it was, as I say in the book, number one, it was his own kinsman in the flesh primarily. It was a lot of the Dutch folk. And um, they were they were coming at him without any real attempt to ferret out what he was saying. And um, I, I, there's, there's uh, when I was writing this, um, doing the editing, I think, I think I'm right on this, but... Um, since I'm since I'm saying this on the air, I have to qualify. It. It's not ninety percent on this. 
The one man who's uh, still alive who was in the midst of criticism, I think, was Cliff Orlebake, and I called him and talked to him, had a nice conversation with him. But I remember him uh, saying on the phone, he says, you know, I was kind of a, a grad student in philosophy trying to get at some of this stuff. And it was almost as if he was saying it was just kind of an attempt to, to wrestle through some some ideas. And that's that's understandable. But um, he, he was, um, I think, downplaying it significantly. And um, I, the criticisms, you begin to see, as I say in the introduction, and I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. I'm not sure anybody can ever be, but there's much more going on behind the scenes than you have in the criticisms themselves. And I think it relates to Van Til being at Westminster, being in the OPC rather than the CRC. I, I can't prove that, but that's my guess. Uh, so I think the criticisms, you know, had more to do with uh, personal issues than they did with the actual theology. Having said that, when you write a criticism and publish it so that it's open to the public, uh, I think you're duty-bound um, to make sure uh, the personal is gone and that you're dealing with, with issues. And, and you, you read those criticisms and you think, well, there's, there's got to be something else here because um, these just, you know, my MDiv students could, could critique the critiques. Um, they're, they're just not much there that uh, is, is worthy of, of publishing. Do you find uh, any modern Van Til critics making the same errors or are people starting to penetrate his thought? And, uh, and giving a real solid critique. Yeah, I, I think there's a I think there's still a basic misunderstanding of uh, of Van Til that um, that remains out there. I think, um, as I say in the book, I even footnote this in the book. I think classical apologetics, for whatever good there is in there, I think it's just another caricature. Um, and I had the opportunity at Westminster to talk to Dr. Gerstner about some of this. I'm not saying anything here that. I, didn't say to him, but I think there are some some things there that just show um, that that Van Til has not been given the um, uh, the time and um, the respect that you would give to another scholar that you're trying to critique. Uh, so what you have in classical apologetics is a lot of caricatures and um, things that Van Til wouldn't teach, and um, you know it's just a, a sort of blown up thing. And that, so I think people who are non-thinking and who read that will think, well, this is this has got to be the, the problem. Um, that that's been um, I think promoted uh, to some extent in in a reformed context and that's not been helpful and useful in the church but i'll have to say by and large um, when i talk to people who are not vantillian and begin to talk to them um, about what vantill actually taught number one they're surprised number two um, they become vantillians <laughs> uh, because they because they get it because i don't have to teach them theology most of them already have their theology so i take that theology and say now how does this apply in apologetic methodology and at that point it becomes uh, uh, seamless almost yeah. to begin to think of apologetics in just that way maybe you could say something uh, in the in the book defense of the faith a lot of the critique is trying to uh, is trying to saddle Van Til with idealism. Um, it doesn't seem that we hear a lot about idealism anymore. Um, it, it's not, at least, it's not thought of in the minds of postmoderns as the boogeyman that it was then. How would you? Um, I know you do some of this work in your footnotes to sort of bring up the sense of, of relevance of Van Til's response to idealism, even though a lot of modern readers aren't interacting with idealism that much. Um, 
Can you explain explain briefly what what is idealism? Why is it important that Van Til distances himself from it, and how does that relate to uh, what you call the best description of his approach, which is transcendental? Or is that too many questions all at once? No, I think I think that's fair. It's uh, it's you know obviously one of those questions we could uh, we'd spend the day on. But I think uh, fundamentally, what you have in, in Van Til is. Um, here's a guy in the 1920s who's a Reformed Christian who um, who has running through his veins uh, uh, the uh, Reformed uh, confession, particularly the Heidelberg, Kuyper, Bavink. Um, he he uh, was, as he says in his own recounting of his of his life, uh, his his family would open and close uh, Scripture at every meal at the table. Hmm. Growing up on the farm, this guy oozes Scripture. He oozes Reformed theology. He comes into a a context in which the, uh, he seems to be gifted in, in philosophical matters. And idealism is uh, having sway with many in the Christian community because it's talking about an absolute. And all of a sudden people are saying, hey, this is great. Idealism talks about an absolute. Well, Van Til's uh, astute enough to know that whatever idealism is saying, if it doesn't have biblical revelation at its foundation, uh, it's skewing the truth. And so he takes it on, and that's that's exactly what apologetics ought to be doing, take on uh, the relevant uh, thought forms that are out there. So what Van Til does, he begins to critique idealism. You can see this again in his dissertation. By the way, in his dissertation, he critiques pragmatism as well and winds up saying they're both on the same page, which, of course, would have made the idealists and pragmatists go ballistic, but he's exactly right on that. Uh, he critiques idealism because the absolute that they're wanting to affirm uh, is, as a matter of fact, uh, dependent on the relative in order to have its proper definition. So Van Til uses terminology, for example, he says God is the concrete universal. Hmm. Now, the concrete universal is a, is a term taken out of idealism that was a reaction against Immanuel Kant. In Kant's view, you had some kind of universal, but it was an abstract universal. It was in the noumenal. It was un- unknown. It was abstracted from the world. It was outside of the phenomenal. But uh, idealism, and particularly in, in Hegelian forms that uh, took over in a British context, British idealism, idealism said we need a concrete universal. That is something that can make sense of everything in the phenomenal world. Concrete, not abstract, in the world. Mm-hmm. And Van Til says, okay, if that's what you want, what you want is the Christian God. God is the only concrete universal. Now, that's great persuasive language. Mm-hmm. But he got attacked on that because now, oh, he's adopting idealism. And, of course, he wasn't. He was taking their terminology Sure. And uh, reorienting it, redefining it, just as uh, Paul does in Acts 17. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of his understanding of idealism, he was he was attacking uh, the current thought forms of his day and uh, doing that in a way that I think was most helpful. Now, in in terms of the the notion of transcendental, um, here's one of those places where I think uh, sometimes uh, all all of us as Vantilians might get a, a little more excited than we should. Um, I think the term transcendental, as I say in, in my uh, notes in Defense of Faith, I think it's the best description of Van Til's methodology. But I say that only because it's a one-word term that can describe so much of what Van Til is after. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the transcendental uh, uh, transcendental method itself, as it was developed by Kant, uh, to put it uh, simply, is simply asking as to the preconditions or presuppositions behind any fact. And that's what Van Til says we need to do as Christians, because we know the presuppositions behind any fact are 
Number one, that God is. Number two, that God has created. Number three, that all people are covenantally related to him. That's behind everything that's being done and said in the world universally. It's, it was true from the beginning. It'll be true into eternity. Now, if you just if you just say what that is is transcendental, then I think you've got what, what Van Til was after. I think in, in some cases, people who want to be um, uh, Van Tilian to the core can sometimes sound as though, let me just say it that way, sound as though the transcendental method has a kind of Christian magic to it hmm. so that only the Christian can be transcendental. Anybody can be transcendental. Anybody can say what are the presuppositions. Kant did. But the reason it is true in a Christian context is because we know what those presuppositions are. So Van Til's hmm. transcendental approach is an adaptation of, an, of, of, a, of a word from idealism brought over into, transplanted into the proper context of Christianity, so that now it is a true biblical methodology. But we shouldn't think that because we say transcendental that nobody else can say transcendental or do something transcendental or be transcendental. I remember uh, hearing R.C. Sproul speak, and he said, I'm going to give a transcendental uh, approach here, a transcendental method. And then he started talking about uh, the impossibility of the contrary with respect to the law of non-contradiction. Okay, that's fine. That's transcendental. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, in the history of philosophy and in the history of theology, the law of non-contradiction needs a foundation. Right. So you haven't gone to the back of where you need to go with respect to Christian revelation. That is, what is it that grounds that law of non-contradiction? And there's a law behind that, the law of identity. What grounds the law of identity with respect uh, to the world? Those kinds of things are transcendental questions. I think you're getting at the root of the preconditions, presuppositions of knowledge and being there. And, um, you know, R.C. was basically right, but he didn't, go, he didn't go back far enough. And if that's as far as you go, you've got no Christian testimony at that point. Um, so what? Logic is, is necessary for all of us. Okay, good. Now we're, now we're done. We can leave the table. But where in the world do you insert the gospel in that kind of context? And that was Van Til's uh, concern. Now, uh, just tailing on that, um, wouldn't you say that ontology is essential here? Because people often ask, well, why can't a Muslim just use this transcendental approach? Well, they can, but it'll fall apart because they don't have a doctrine of the Trinity. Exactly right. And that's why Van Til said the ontological Trinity is the human predication. In other words, what he's saying here, again, and all Christians believe this, God exists eternally in and of himself. In that existence, then, the Lord himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, decided he would create. That means ontology precedes everything. That's all we're saying. That is, the being of God is the foundation and presupposition behind everything else. And the being of God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because he is triune, or, or I should say it this way, in that he is triune, he is able also to condescend. And in his condescension to reveal himself. You have none of that in Muslim theology. Condescension would be beneath the God of Islam. Uh, and it has to be, because he is one, he is transcendent, etc., etc. Well, uh, our God is able uh, to come to us, and even in Christ, to take on humanity in order to solve our problem. No other God uh, has that ability in any other religion. That begins with ontology and moves then uh, to an understanding of creation that presupposes the creator-creature distinction, which is an ontological distinction. Jim, do you have a question? My question has to do with, um, for instance, among Vantilians, I guess, uh, those who claim Vantilian uh, to be Vantilian. There are those who uh, uh, tend to have more of a kind of neo-Calvinist edge to them. Um, others 
uh, don't. And I, I'm wondering, what are the differences between Van Til and Kuiper that have perhaps precipitated that distinction among his followers? Yeah, well, a um, number of ways to go on that one. Let me, let me, uh, let me try this. I, I think what... Uh, what I see, this, this may not be the, the direction you want to go, Jim, but let me just tell you what, what I see um, in, in the areas where I, I work and read. Um, when, you, when you look at what's happening, for example, among people who claim, who, who claim Kuiper uh, today, but not Van Til, let me try to put it that way, hmm. um, what you tend to see in philosophers and theologians is a vast stretches of neutrality uh, assumed and presupposed because uh, Kuiper, while he was uh, strong and uh, adamant on the antithesis, uh, nevertheless said that there are areas in which uh, the antithesis does not uh, obtain, mm. like, like weighing and counting and measuring, and then he says logic. Now, you take that one word, logic, as some have done, and stretch that into the entire field of philosophy. And what you have in many uh, who would claim Kuiper today is a kind of uh, a neutral discussion uh, in which uh, you think you can sort of draw from uh, different elements uh, in the world in order to uh, articulate some things that everyone uh, will be in agreement upon. And, 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 see, what, what, and see, Van Til saw that. Um, if, if I can just, if I can just um, diverge for a minute here, you have the same kind of thing in, in uh, Herman Bovink. And um, I'm convinced uh, at this point in my rereading, which I've done recently, uh, that Van Til's critique of Bovink was right on the money. And uh, I think what you begin to see <clears throat> in certain people who want to follow Bovink is a promotion of a, a realistic epistemology. Uh, in which there is an assumed neutrality. Uh, you have this, for example, in, in um, our good friend John Bolt. His following of Bovink is exactly what Van Til was afraid of. If you take a certain aspect of Bovink, which admittedly is, is a minimal aspect of Bovink, but if you take that and run with it, you're going to have uh, developing a neutral methodology in which you begin to bring in all kinds of sources and resources by way of the presumption of neutrality. You don't have that option in Van Til. And um, I, I think when you, when you begin to see people following Kuiper in a, in a particular way, uh, then, uh, and, and, and then pick up on Bovink in the same kind of way, uh, I think what you begin to see is a, is a vast distinction between what's going on in some quarters that is in the name of Kuiperianism or Neo-Calvinism and what's going on in uh, a Vantillian context, again, because Vantill, I think, uh, is more consistent with uh, Protestant scholasticism by way of his reading of Bovink. What are some areas of Vantillian scholarship um, that need to be developed further? Um, I think you can, you can almost uh, take any chapter in defense of the faith and say, let's expand this, let's move uh, in this. I, re I remember talking to Van Til, I asked him one time, I said, how come you didn't uh, do anything with analytic philosophy? And most of your writing, he wrote a little bit here and there, but I said, in most of your writings, why don't you do anything? He said, I don't understand it, why don't you do something? And, um, you know, what, what he was, his, of course, 
you know, all he meant was he hadn't, hadn't taken the time to delve into it. And I think Van Til was always very encouraging to uh, students and, and people who were interested in his method uh, to keep going with what he was doing. And so I think you can take almost any aspect of Van Til's apologetic approach and begin to develop that in, in a certain way. It's one of the things I try to do in Reasons for Faith. If we're going to talk to philosophers and use some of their language, can we do this in a way that doesn't compromise Christianity? I think we can. That doesn't mean philosophers are going to listen, but that's not our problem. Yeah. Uh, we're, tr- we're trying to say something to them in their language. It's going to be fundamentally Christian. And uh, so I think in that, in that sense, much more needs to be done on what it means to be transcendental in a Christian sense. Much more needs to be done on common grace issue, on point of contact, on language that we speak. Um, when I talk about apologetics, I talk much more about persuasion than I do about proof because the, uh, and, and again, you begin to see, you certainly see this in Calvin, you begin to see it in the Protestant scholastics. Uh, there is no real demonstration in terms of proof with respect to the existence of God without there being also uh, elements of persuasion. And so I think much more needs to be done uh, in those. And, bec- and because people are made in the image of God and know God, the persuasive contact is already there embedded in us by virtue of being made in the image of God. Um, that has huge implications uh, for apologetics. Um, I think in areas of epistemology, um, Descartes wanted a clear and distinct idea that was universally present in all men. Now, what is that? Knowledge of God, Romans mm-hmm. 1. Clear and distinct, not idea, knowledge that is universally present. There's the ground and foundation for epistemology in a Christian context. Much more needs to be developed in that in that sense as well. Where would where would you recommend people to start if they haven't been trained or haven't studied Van Til already? Where would you recommend they go to to get a start in it? Well, um, I think this book has to be the beginning point. Um, I, I think if you can, and I'm 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 going from my own experience here. This is where I started. You start with defense of the faith, and I think if you can pick this up and read it and reread it and reread it until you get it, until it clicks, um, then perhaps pick up Bonson's Reader, which is a compilation of, of most of Van Til's works in a, in a more systematic format, and, and read Van Til in that context. Um, I think once you begin to do that, then uh, the the world just opens up, and there are a multitude of things you begin to write on and think about with respect to his apologetic methodology and how that relates to Reformed theology specifically. Are there any other plans for PNR to, to issue edited versions of, of some of his other works, perhaps Common Grace in the Gospel or Christian Theistic Evidences? Yeah, I've, I've tried to communicate with them uh, on that a couple of times and um, for one reason or another maybe uh, because I'm not a good communicator or uh, something, uh, I'm, I'm not getting to the uh, not getting to the bottom of this but I've told them what I would like to do uh, if they were amenable to it is next do Common Grace in the Gospel and then I'd like to do Survey of Christian Epistemology oh. hmm. um, both of those uh, crucial central books in Van Til that I would encourage people to pick up after Defense of the Faith uh, certainly Christian theistic evidence is, is huge uh, today uh, given the kind of rise in evidentialism and um, I think that one ought to be done as well. So hopefully they'll they'll continue um, to to do this, and and we'll be able to get those books out. Um, by the way, let me just say when I say you ought to read this defensive page, I don't get any honorariums from this, so I'm not trying to uh, <laughs> to, to uh, promote any kind of paycheck or anything. But I do think um, it's 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 uh, it's a book that has to be read if you're going to understand Ben Till. Excellent. 
Well, this has been a great discussion, and we hope uh, people will go out and uh, and get the, pick this book up um, in order to understand and be able to meet the challenges, the apologetic challenges of the day. Uh, we we all find it very important, and we think uh, people would be they would do themselves well to read and study Van Til, uh, as he's such a good thinker uh, and and so confessional and reformed as well. We want to thank everyone for listening. We want to also point people back to the website. You can visit castlechurch.org. You can get the bibliography. Uh, you can also get information about our other programs, and you can subscribe to things. You can also visit our forums at forums.castlechurch.org if you want to comment or if you got a question you can post it there or you can send us an email uh and also one more thing i want to announce we're going to uh we're debating on starting a a book review or a a media review uh program so if you have any reviews you'd like to submit in audio form or if you would like to talk to with us about any books you've read um and you would be willing to record something in audio form about that, please get a hold of us. You can email us at mail at castlechurch.org or you can visit castlechurch.org slash contact, fill out the form and we'll get it. We again uh, thank everyone for listening and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.